Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker. And folks, on today's show, we are pleased to have our second interview with Kimberly Josephson. How's it going, Ron? It's going great, Ed. I'm looking forward to this. Love having Kimberly on. Yes, yes. She's been on before show 360, if you want to listen to that, back in October of 2021. And she was on with uh, Sam Staley also in April of 2022, where we had a, a really nice debate style conversation um, that I think was uh, provided a lot of insights. But let me quick read the bio to get started on the interview today. Dr. Kimberly Josephson is the an associate professor of business for the Breen Center for Graduate Success at Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania, and adjunct research fellow with the Consumer Choice Center. Her academic background is in international studies and strategic management, and she teaches courses covering the topics of global sustainability, international marketing, and workplace diversity. Welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise, Kimberly. Oh, it's so nice to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, you recently wrote an article, I think it came out in December of 2022, Reputation Works Better Than Regulation, Why Demand Should Determine Prices. And yesterday, the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, on their Twitter handle, responded to CNN, who said, Beyonce announces her worldwide tour, and the Beehive prepares for another potential Ticketmaster meltdown following the Taylor Swift era of tour disaster. What the Senate Judiciary Committee said was, we're watching Ticketmaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, what exactly are they watching? I I, I don't. I don't <laughs> what's uh, the? <laughs> well, and it, it was just so funny to see you know all the complaints that came through on Twitter and AOC complaining about the Taylor Swift tickets being so high and it's a monopoly and things like that. But the thing is, you know, when you have these concerts in these settings, it's it's a captive market. You have limited seats available. You have high demand because you have the Swifties, right, who will do anything um, for that opportunity. And so when you have limited su- supply and a lot of demand and uh, essentially charging what the market will bear because people are paying thousands and thousands of dollars for it, um, that's what's going to happen. I don't know why people were were so surprised by it. Um, you know, it's it's unfortunate that, you know, if you want to see Taylor Swift, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg, but um, that's also kind of the nature of the game. She, you know, if you wanted to see Elton John or someone else, like you you expect those high, high prices. Um, but the other kind of funny thing too is, uh, you know, in, in terms of my article, I kind of emphasize reputation matters more than regulation, because if they are going to do anything, this is going to be a slow and painful process for everybody involved. Whereas, you know, the complaints coming in from fans, putting pressure on Taylor Swift herself, Taylor Swift putting pressure on Ticketmaster, right? Um, We're going to see probably some changes coming about just because of this, because of the dissatisfaction. Um, Everybody's reputation is kind of on the line in that regard. Um, so whenever you have unhappy customers and, you know, once again, there's a lot of demand, uh, hopefully someone who's rather opportunistic, uh, some entrepreneurs will say, hey, I can I can do what 
Ticketmaster is doing and figure out a better way to streamline the system, or we can figure out a way to, um, I mean, we can't clone Taylor Swift, um, you know, and, and basically to uh, Ticketmaster's um, in one of their statements that they put out was kind of like, there are only so many concerts we can offer. Um, and so, you know, we're sorry, like you, you can't all have tickets and they're going to cost you a lot. Um, but, you know, when you see these pressure points, uh, usually the market will respond. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's what we're hoping for. And it just doesn't make, make sense for uh, government involvement in this. Yeah, and they, I mean, they used to, uh, I remember waiting in, overnight in Madison Square Garden or Penn, uh, Grand Central Station for, well, Penn Station for Billy Joel tickets when I was in college. And, you know, we, we waited online and got seats and we, we all paid the same, but we were in a particular, it was, it was by row, like or the ring, you know, the different levels. So there's been dynamic pricing, but they never went to the level. And I guess it's from a technological perspective, one of the reasons that they've been able to do this but yet there were this thing called scalpers <laughs> who <laughs> yeah. did the exact same thing. <laughs> right. Well, and, and dynamic pricing, there's nothing wrong with it. It means you adjust your prices in, um, you know, in accordance to what is going on. Usually it is meant to cur curtail demand. Um, it actually first came about um, in trying to, uh, yeah, limit demand, um, lessen congestion in subway systems in that, you know, at heavy traffic times, you charge a higher rate and at less traffic times, right? And we all know this, when you travel, you know, you're going to get a cheaper hotel during the week versus weekend. Um, so, you know, we're well aware of it. Actually, when my husband and I, we recently um, saw uh, the Black Crows in Philadelphia and, uh, you know, so not a scalper, but when we were in the, in the, um, we were at the Met, I think it was called, and uh, it was great. It was beautiful. But when we were in there, they said, would you like to pay more to get these box seats, right? Because uh, they happen to be available. If they weren't available, they wouldn't have been offered, right? And they didn't, they weren't forcing us to buy them, but it was a, a yes, it costs more, but it was a good deal. And we were all amped to be there. So, so we took advantage, right? Um, so depending on these concerts, there actually is a lot of risk for the event, Um for the event site, because there's potential you're not going to sell out. Um, and if so, you know, two things can happen. Either you have extra seats where then you have to offload them. And if they're in high demand, you charge a high price. If they're in a low demand, you charge a low price, right? Um, also, there's other externalities that might come into play. Uh, we all can remember when live entertainment took a big hit during 2020 and 2021. Um, so, you know, they have to uh, cover their end. But once again, we see dynamic pricing all the time. Our local theater, um, actually, we have a, this wonderful theater um, in town. It's like, you know, it's like stepping back in time. It's a real small, small town theater. Um, but they'll have uh, comedians come in and they'll have little concerts and they'll show movies. And they adjust the prices according to who's performing and also according to the crowd. So during uh, the school term, when we have our students on campus, they actually grant college students a discount. I'm, get, I'm charged a higher price, right? To see the same show, same time, same everything. They get a less price just because they're students. So essentially we could say that's almost predatory pricing. Why do I have to pay more? It's, well, cause I can, and I'm willing to, and they're trying to incentivize the college kids to, you know, come out, come downtown and enjoy a show. Well, it's just ageism. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think that's the thing that's really missed, right? Is that dynamic pricing is both companies and consumers take advantage of it. That's that th they completely miss that consumers actually take advantage of it to some degree as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I tell my students, I give them little 
tricks of the trade because, you know, I teach marketing courses and there's even just some things that you learn over time to do, like, you know, let that, uh, if you're shopping online, let whatever is in your shopping cart, that, you know, virtual shopping cart, let it sit there a few days and normally you'll get a notification of a coupon, right? Or adjust your zip code for your preferred store and depending on the purchasing power of the local location you're in, um, the price might adjust, right? Um, if you go, the thing is for companies, it's really hard uh, to compete nowadays because consumers can be very savvy. Um, oftentimes I will go in the store and yeah, I will scan that barcode and see if I can get a pr better price online and then I will, right? Um, so so they're trying to be savvy as well. And if they can take advantage and, and that sounds negative to say take advantage, but truly if they can take advantage of an opportunity, once again, it's, it, it it's a voluntary system. I don't have to pay what char what Target is part of, but uh, Target is uh, you know promoting. Um, so I can wait for it to go on sale, or once again I can look and see if Amazon has it or something like that. But if I'm in the store and I'm willing to pay a higher price, and I find out later on, you know, it's you, you can get it for a lower price in another county or something like that, I may be a little upset about that, but you know, they did what they did. And if I'm really all that upset, I go and I return it, right? And I get the other version at the other store. Um, so it, it's a strategic move. Yeah. And I mean, and airlines have been doing dynamic pricing for a long time, Ron, and I have talked about this. And uh, Rory Sutherland, who's been a guest on the show, makes a joke that, you know, airline pricing is practically socialist. You know, there's <laughs> it's really is that you're subsidizing the people who are flying in the back at a cheaper price. Who, yeah. you know, get, they get they get from New York to L.A. just as much as the first class people do. They get treated differently, but they get the same basic service, but just at a different price. Right, right. Well, and a big complaint, um, actually, personally, I have a big complaint with uh, the different airlines right now is just the baggage fees, right? Um, so some, you know, I have some, uh, I have a trip I'm going on, and I'm flying one airline where the baggage you can bring a carry on. And on the return home flight, I can't. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to pay for it. And I found out since my husband and I are on the same ticket, regardless of him not needing a carry-on, we actually have to pay for both of us having a carry-on, right? Um, so that's really taking advantage. Uh, so, you know, that's not to say that, yeah, business can't be maybe run a little bit better, but but also too, I'm not being forced on that flight. And I also picked that flight because it was a cheaper option than another one. Uh, so if I have to pay more for the baggage, you know, I have to pay more for the baggage. Uh, so I'm not happy about it, but that's how it is. Right. You could always say no. And of course, I think that that's silly on their part, because what's going to happen is that people are now going to bring more carry on because they paid for it anyway. <laughs> right, right. Well, and that, that's precisely why I was like, well, you know what, babe, you can bring your carry on too. And you know, why not? And I now have a favorable, uh, you know, mindset for um, the other airline, which I'm going to be riding on the way down. And so mm -hmm. now I'm going to be like, you know, have this negative. So once again, too, companies have to be aware this is going to factor into my consideration set in the future. In that if I have the option, I'm going to choose the favorite airline, right? And over time, that will have a spillover effect. What do you think is is driving a lot of artists? And uh, I think Bruce Springsteen was like this for a while. He's uh, also now doing dynamic pricing because I'm going to the concert here in Dallas and he used Ticketmaster. Yeah. So he's made the, the adjustment. But even 10 years ago, he was saying like, no, what, there should be one price across the board. Does it go back to the time when they were, were thinking that, well, people were buying the album for the same price? I mean, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what the psyche is be, behind them saying, no, everybody should pay the same price in the whole place. 
Yeah, I I don't know either because you know what too the the event site is really an intermediary. It's providing an opportunity yeah. for the artist to connect with the audience. Um, you know, if artists want to just hold open shows on their own for free, more power to them. Open up your mansions and your houses and let us in, you know. Uh, so if they, once again, you know, the Ticketmaster is providing a service. The event site is providing a service. If you are not happy, yes, negotiate, complain, raise concerns, come up with better ideas, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe come up with your own investment uh, for a better way to have these intermediaries. Um, but you know, if, if that's all that's available, that's, that's really what's available. So, yeah. 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 Well, and as you point out at the end of the article, it's like they had over 14 million users try to get to the website. And if she had to do the show for that number of people, it would be 900 stadium shows, 20 times the number of shows that she's actually doing and every sell out every single night for the next two and a half years. <laughs> Yeah, it's unreal. It's unreal. So, I mean, good on her. I I, I don't have right. her albums or anything, but people love her. And I know, it, you know, she's an in, in, inspiration to a lot. So, you know, good, good on her. But it's also, you know, you can't, you can't necessarily blame. T I'm surprised Ticketmaster just didn't implode the website when uh, all the Swifties went on to buy the tickets. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are up against our first break. Want to remind folks that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is the soul of enterprise where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We do have a Patreon channel uh, that you can find the show commercial free as well as our bonus episodes at patreon.com slash tsoe. And at a certain level, you can get a shout out like Mark Gandy did at CFO bookshelf check him out right now a word from our sponsor be sure to friend us on facebook you can do it right now visit facebook.com forward slash voice america or search for us at keyword voice america have you ever read a book that changed your life i sure have have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel.
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Kimberly Josephson. And Kimberly, I've got to talk to you about ESG. Yeah. This is just, (laughs) to me, this is just a, this is just hokum on steroids. I can't believe we're this far into it and it needs so much pushback, but just let's start here. Mm -hmm. I can't even find a coherent definition of what E, S, and G are. Right, right. Well, and actually, so, you know, the the roots run deep and I have a few articles um, with the American Institute for Economic Research. um, And I have a few more that hopefully will be coming out soon um, because I really like to track like where did this originate? How did it come about and how it's so multifaceted in terms of um, really just kind of uh, growing and evolving over time? Because really you have from the consumer mindset in that I want to support businesses that are doing good and have a social impact and positive, right? And then you have businesses to ever since, you know, the CSR mantra came about, you know, the corporate social responsibility kind of understanding of business should play a bigger role in society and should ensure that they have a positive impact. You know, that kind of took hold in the 1960s and then exploded in the 90s. And um, and the thing is, then you have from on high, you have these intergovernmental organizations, the UN, the World Economic Forum, who had this kind of initiative and mandate, and this even dates back um, to the 1960s, and then especially in the 1980s, um, focusing on we are going to play a bigger role in economic development, in aid assistance. Uh, But in order to do that, they needed the financial sector to be on board. Uh, They needed asset managers. So they needed needed assistance in terms of getting funding um, and support for these different agencies. Um, And so now it's all kind of coming to a head. Right. Where you have these businesses who um, kind of started to go down this path and also want to have some, um, you know, essentially have some recognition for what they're doing. Right. Um, So they want some sort of stamp of approval. And so they're abiding by these frameworks, just like uh, equated to. So, for example, I'm a professor. So we in the university system, we have these accrediting bodies. Right. That verifies and say, Yes, you know, you're, you're doing X, Y, and Z, the curriculum requirements. So same sort of thing. So some of the bigger organizations, especially the ones that tend to get a lot of heat, like McDonald's and stuff like that, uh, really want to be able to showcase that, hey, we're actually good. We're not the big, bad, you know, whatever. So Amazon and stuff like that. Uh, so they want some credibility behind what it is that they're saying. And they also like to use these labels and logos, right? 1% for the planet and and things like that uh, to really just kind of signal what it is they're doing. Now, the thing is you have all these different social labels and all these different systems um, where now they're competing for each other. And this has really provided an opportunity for the United Nations who actually helped in developing what's known as um, uh, the GRI framework, um, which is connected to the principles for responsible investment, um, pretty much saying, you know what, everything's so fragmented and it's not clear who's doing what. And they're actually looking to standardize. So, Ron, actually, you're concerned that you can't find a single one that matches up. Actually, I would prefer that because we can discredit it. 
they're looking to centralize and standardize the ESG framework so you don't have these inconsistencies. And that's what actually I think I'm, I'm really worried about because now it's all going to be uh, really controlled, right? And and determined by external dictates. And um, I, th I think that's a big red flag. I, I think we need to be calling out the rating systems, but you know, the inconsistencies, actually, that's kind of a good thing right now. Uh, I don't want it to become more um, controlled and standardized. Right. I mean, you, you sent us an article. I don't know if this has been published yet, but why apprehension for ESG are warranted. And that's one of the points you make. Centralizing control and systematizing standards impedes rather than empowers firms, while assessments and monitoring mechanisms create roadblocks for innovative processes, since anything yeah. new or different will be needed you know, you have to verify it first. And this just reminds me, Kimberly, that data and knowledge are by definition about the past, but entrepreneurship and innovation is about the future. And right, this is right. like a wet blanket on that in my mind. Yeah. Who would try anything new if it's going to impact their ESG score? Right. And innovation is messy and it's, it's, it totally. has to be messy because it's always trial and error. It's something that we talk about in classes, you know, um, different prototypes that have been tried. And like for the Dyson um, vacuum, uh, I think it was like over 5,000 prototypes were tried initially. Um, if you're concerned about waste, right, even think about the creation of even just new uh, food combinations. So another uh, company that we looked at was like Cliff Bar and how many recipes mm. and trying it out, right? And all that food waste, you just throw it out, right? Uh, there's going to be waste and there's going to be things happening, but it also, you have to look at really the net benefits. Um, so this really does, like you said, uh, throws a wet blanket on it. I kind of equate it to, um, if you think about how how uh, governments have instituted different industrial policies to really promote, you know, business and development, and none of them work. I'm a little concerned that if the same thing happens with we're going to be, you know, pushing these environmental policies, we're actually going to see less innovation in how to and being more resourceful in that regard. Um, so yeah, so I have a, a big concern. And then also too, you know, for companies that want to take on, so how you said, what does ESG even mean, right? So environmental, social, and governance, there are certain aspects, and this is what makes it so tricky. There are certain aspects that you can totally agree with, right? Like, okay, yeah, we should engage in resource development. We should be mindful of, you know, our waste. And same thing with social, you know, we need to make sure that our employees are happy and they're taken care of and we don't have high turnover rates and governance. Yes, we need to make sure there's a level of transparency and, and we're conducting matters, you know, according to ethical standards in our industry, right? So on those elements, but when you systematize it and rank it, and it's also somewhat subjective, depending on the situation and the cultural context, um, it's a big red flag. It's totally subjective. There's nothing scientific about these measurements, their metrics, their judgments. And the MIT and uh, University of Zurich did a study, you're probably familiar with it. They looked at six ESG agencies and they found there's a 54% correlation between their ratings. Whereas if you look at the rating agencies, it's something like 99% correlation. Yeah. And, and we're supposed to make trillion dollar capital allocations based on these subjective metrics. This is yeah. crazy. Well, and just think about how complicated it is to even think about assessments for such broad categories of ESG. And also, if we just take a little bit of common sense and realize, you know, ESG really only started to come about now, once again, the roots run deep, but the frameworks themselves are fairly new. Uh, the concept of ESG was only in the early 2000s. 
And we're expecting companies to have chief sustainability officers and chief ESG officers. No one's trained for that in full, right? Now you do have MIT, I think Cornell's another, there's a few um, university systems that now have ESG uh, degree programs. Um, but that just shows you these are brand new degree programs, meaning people aren't properly and fully trained in this. So how can you therefore say, OK, you know, we're going to have this chief ESG officer. That's like saying, you know, jack of all trades with no with no training really behind it, because this is so new. This is from the early 2000s. So wrapping your head around it um, is just quite a lot. And, and so many of these metrics require a framework or a theory and that's almost impossible to agree upon. I mean, just look at the state of econometrics or even science. Yeah. You know, the, the best you can say about a theory is it hasn't been disproven yet because that famous mathematician who said all models are wrong, but some are useful. Right. Well, but that's meaning that means that most models are wrong. And yet we're gonna we're gonna give these guys the Oracle of Delphi you know, seal of approval for putting an ESG score, they gave a higher ESG score to FTX than they did to ExxonMobil. Right. Well, and you know what, too, is you miss a whole realm of all the spillover effects and, and trade-offs. I'll give you a really silly example. But, uh, for example, um, Logo, uh, Legos um, actually has reduced the size of their packaging, their boxes, to less in waste. And, you know, you, I guess you don't need these big boxes for little Legos, right? Um, but, you know... Legos are crazy expensive. Talk about a monopoly, right? right? So that's my example to students too. That, oh, monopoly. Like, no, if the market's happy with it, if there's only one provider, as long as the market's happy with it, that's fine. You know, so Legos, I always joke about that they have kind of a monopoly and Legos are expensive, right? So when I get Legos for my kids for the holidays, I actually end up putting it in a bigger box and wrapping it up. So I'm using more cardboard because of their little cardboard, right? Um, so there are, there's always going to be trade-offs involved with that. Um, and also even for Legos, I mean, it's made out of plastic, right? So how, right, like right. you have companies that are just going to be demonized for, for doing what they do. Um, so, so yeah, so I have, I have big concerns with that. And, you know, it seems like ESG, you read about these scores for the, the Bank of China and the Russian bank got a higher ESG score than JP Morgan. And it's like, well, they missed the Ukraine war. They didn't, right. they didn't factor into that risk. But then why is it that Larry Fink and BlackRock and Vanguard and all the others, they don't care. They don't seem to care about the E and the S and the G when it comes to China, which is terrible on all three of them. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's so much hypocrisy in the system and even corruption in the system. Um, it just it just reeks. And, and so once again, that's why I have such a concern for it becoming standardized and centralized, because also once it is, it's going to be easier to create it into a policy. Right. And actually, we see this in the European Union that different um, some regulations are coming about with it. And that will have a ripple effect uh, to the U.S. So once we see it implemented elsewhere, it'll be easier for our policymakers to say, look what's happening in the European Union. We should be adopting that as well. Well, what scares me, though, is if they do, you know, if they if they make this part of regulation and disclosure, it, it could triple the disclosure costs on companies up, up to eight for $8.4 billion, depending on your assumptions. And boy, once those regulations are in place, they're going to be almost impossible to remove. 
Right. Well, and, and a big concern is actually it's going to cause, I think, some retrenchment. So it's going to create entry barriers for new businesses. And I think it's actually going to hurt uh, not only budding businesses, but supply chain networks, too, because um, it doesn't just assess you. It also assesses your networks, your suppliers and your distributors. Right. And, and scope um, so, three, your customers. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I, and, and just one more thing. I know we're up against it here, but United Airlines announced recently that they're going to use hiring quotas for pilots. Now that's going to increase their S score. But Kimberly, the problem is it's against the law. Right, right. So which one's going to win the ESG score or the law? Right, right. Well, and that's the thing. You're going to have you're going to have companies that um, are really just doing it almost like the woke washing or the green washing. They're going to figure out loopholes to the system um, or they're going to just yeah do what it says to tick the box. And that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to receive better or even safer service, depending on how the hiring practices go. Um, so. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'd love to talk a little bit more about my concerns with the stakeholder model, because I think that they kind of go hand in hand and and it's a bit of a problem because this is very trendy now in uh, university systems to talk about the stakeholder model and um, you know I think it's only empowering ESG and giving it more um, more support well we'll do that and we'll also talk about one of my favorite people recently is Oswath Damodaran have you heard of this uh, university of finance professor from the Stern School of Business no you know Ed and I did a show and we said we respectfully dissent from ESG. This mm-hmm. guy disrespectfully dissents. He has nothing good to say about it. So we'll talk about that when we return oh, from good. this break. <laughs> but folks, in the meantime, we'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at fairsage.com. Do check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com where you can find full show notes. And we'll link to some of uh, Kimberly's articles. And also check out 90 Minds the new sponsor of our Patreon channel, where you can subscribe to the show at patreon.com slash TSOE. Find the mind at 90 minds, check them out at 90 minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play finding your frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. 
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Kimberly Josephson. And Kimberly, I, we, I mentioned uh, Professor Oswath Damadaran. He's a professor of finance at, Skern, at the Stern School of Business at New York University. And here is what he said about ESG. This is a concept that was born in sanctimony, nurtured with hypocrisy, and sold with sophistry all the way through. It's the most oversold and overhyped concept in business history react to that. I agree. Thank you. I, I could not agree more. It really is. It's just, it's coming from these external dis, uh, you know, dictates of, of agencies who really think that, uh, they know better. It's a paternalistic mindset. And it's also creating these agencies that are rent seeking. So uh, a great example is like how Deloitte will publish, uh, statistics or survey results saying, you know, consumers want this and, you know, X amount of CEOs are pursuing this. And it's like, well, of course you're going to say that. You're one of the uh, consulting firms that helps with the rating systems and points uh, points the businesses in the right direction for uh, pursuing these ESG metrics. Um, so yeah, so for these organizations, and the thing is, it once again, going back to it, it all depends on how you are viewing what is being assessed, who is reporting what's being assessed, who is the one who is actually uh, doing the rating. Um, it's just such a, a, a minefield of just craziness. Uh, so for example, the SPICE model is something that I talk about in my class in relation to the stakeholder mindset. Um, I'm a big fan of just shareholder primacy. Right. Because uh, if you if, if you are concerned with your shareholders and making sure you profit, then all the other things will fall into place. You have to be ethical. You have to treat your employees well. You have to provide value for your customers. Um, you have to make sure that you have a good reputation in the community. Right. So focusing on profits and, and actually profits are really important um, because it's a signal that you're doing something right. Right. So if you're profiting, that should be a symbol that you should be proud of. Right. Um, but right now in a lot of business schools, they focus on the stakeholder mindset and ESG is lumped into into that. And the stakeholder mindset is kind of this idea of I have to be aware of all of my spillover effects and all of my stakeholders. So stakeholders are those who have a vested interest, uh, not necessarily financially. Um, we could classify shareholders and investors as stakeholders, um, but it's it's really anyone who can influence the firm or, or the firm can influence. Um, and so you could just cover anything and everything under the sun. But I like to use what's what I call the SPICE model um, because it's kind of like your core stakeholders. So society, partners, so that's your suppliers and distributors, investors, uh, customers, and employees, right? And then I tell my students, okay, now prioritize them. <laughs> and you can't, right? right, right. Um, and so we'll go through different scenarios too. And just recently in my one class, um, and we actually didn't get to spend a lot of it in time in classes, I tend to talk a lot. Uh, and so we didn't get to spend as much time as I, I normally like to, but I often introduce this news article that covers um, a ferry, um, yeah, a, a ferry uh, boat uh, in in the UK uh, that had a big, um, big dispute and that they let their British seafarers go uh, and they hired um, they hired foreign workers from India um, at a lesser wage. And so it was this whole thing of, you know, Indian seafarer wages being paid peanuts and this is exploiting uh, and this is terrible. And 
you know, depending on how you look at it, you'd say, okay, well, if if we really break it down, you know, and we have the students analyze it and they go, okay, this is really bad of this company to do. They're taking advantage of these workers. Um, and yeah, according to the stakeholder model, they should be treating their British workers better. But when we take away the aspect of the British workers and we actually go into the data on how much they were paying these Indian workers, um, they actually are getting a higher rate than they would at home or from other foreign firms. And this created a great opportunity for these seafarers. And the UK uh, ferry business was doing nothing wrong because they don't have to abide by UK law, giving the uh, maritime you know, deals and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so if you just looked at it at that, you'd actually say, well, you know what? They're really creating quite a nice opportunity for these foreign workers who are opting to work. Now, once again, I'm sure it's not great and desirable work that we'd all want to be doing, but they're getting paid more than they normally would. And we'd say, oh, this would actually promote some economic development, uh, you know, and, and so it's just, once again, the the cultural context, the situation, what's going on. I mean, oh my goodness, if, if, if you hear now there are talks about, you know, banning single-use plastics and things like that. I mean, we have such a short-term memory. Does no one remember COVID, right? Everything was covered in plastic throughout 2020. We needed to throw away single-use plastic. Um, like that was all over the place. So, you know, this, depending on the context and what's going on, um, having these bans in place, and, and that's part of the reason um, I'm connected to the Consumer Choice Centers. They really do focus on harm reduction, and they also mm -hmm. focus on how do we empower consumers? And a lot of times, you know, when you put these um, different assessments or ranking systems, it actually limits opportunities uh, for consumers and it li limits opportunities um, for exploration and innovations, um, which is unfortunate for consumers as well. Well, I'm so glad you're focused on the stakeholder theory because I couldn't agree more that that's the big issue here. Because if you think about it, e even the stakeholders have conflicting interests. Take an ESG dollar. Well, of course the employees want a higher wage the investors want higher returns. The customers want lower prices. The suppliers who sell the business want higher prices for what they sell. How's this all settled? Well, the price system settles all this. We don't need a czar of ESG to figure this out. The price. So when I think a stakeholder theory can really, I think of it this way. If you're responsible to all of these people, some who may not even be customers and ever walk into your store. Well, you know, they say with the slave with three masters is a free man. Right, right. I'm not yeah. accountable to any of them. Yeah. Well, and you know what, too, I feel like the stakeholder uh, model really just, it, it just really deters interest in that profit motive. And once again, the profit motive is what's going to force you as an entrepreneur, as a producer, um, to pursue excellence, right? Because once again, it's a signal that you're doing something right. You're being effective and you're being efficient. But when we put into the mindset, especially of college students, that you need to be considering your social impact and you need to be thinking about X, Y, and Z, um, especially for, I mean, to be honest too, I like write for accountants. I almost feel bad for our accounting students because it's like, okay, uh, what if I want to open, open up my accounting firm? Should I also create, you know, a cafe for the homeless next to it or something? How do I, right? Because there's so many social entrepreneurship programs out there and different grants and things that, okay, if you can prove you're doing good by society, 
No, providing a service, right? Something that you need, um, that consumers are looking to have this um, problem taken care of, having my taxes filed, having my, you know, getting my wealth in order, all that sort of stuff. Like, that's very important. That is a social impact in and of itself. And I feel like it really, um, you know, is a disservice to make students who aren't pursuing that kind of social good and social entrepreneurship, it almost makes them seem like they're doing the wrong thing. Whereas in actuality, you know, they certainly aren't. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not a fan of social entrepreneurship programs just for that reason. And once again, if you want to do that, and if you want to pursue working for a nonprofit or an NGO, more power to you, right? But don't demonize those that aren't, right? Those that are going for for-profit, because uh, that has such value in and of itself. Right. People who are out to save the world, I'm very skeptical of. I mean, look at Sam Bankman, Freed, right? I mean, yeah. it's all he talked about was effective altruism. Yeah, well, and you know, I really don't like effective altruism because it is that it's very, once again, it's patronizing. It's patronizing, right? Uh, so I'm going to take care of you. I can do better to help society. I'm going to, right? No, focus on yourself and be as efficient, as effective, as ethical as possible. And it will have a wonderful ripple effect, right? Taking that self-initiative. If you're always focused on, on those outside, um, and especially too, what's going on with other people and with their businesses, uh, you don't know, you can't assume, right? And some of that stuff is going to be out of your area of competency or wheelhouse. Um, you know, so my husband, he's a, he's a arborist. And so, you know, he's all into trees and everything. Uh, it's kind of funny because sometimes you have these, uh, you know, tree campaigns where you, you buy something and plant a tree. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they backfire, especially if you don't have anyone who's maintaining it. If it's not the, the right plant in the right place and all that sort of stuff. Um, so sometimes these uh, ideas for good outcomes uh, don't always pan out as, as you think and can even do more harm than good. What do you think about the red states? Some, you know, West Virginia, and there's a whole slew of them now whose controllers have, have written to BlackRock and Vanguard saying, we're pulling our public pensions because you guys are, you know, you're attacking fossil fuels and West Virginia is totally dependent on fossil fuel. And the, I mean, I, I'm I'm query of this, but I I can see why they're doing it. What, what's your take on the red states doing this? Yeah, well, the only thing is, it, it yeah, it pains me on both sides because also too, I almost feel like I I never am for more government interference right. <laughs> type of yeah. thing. So you know, that's that's my only kind of concern with that. Um, but I also get it in that a lot of us who have pension funds or retirement accounts, we're not in the know of how it's being managed or where it's all going. Um, and so, you know, kind of calling it out. Now, I'd rather have, you know, maybe the states call attention to it, but once again, put it on the investors to move your money around. Um, but but yeah, so I. I'm hesitant to say either way, but I, I'm always for less government interference, but um, definitely more transparency and education in terms of, um, you know, where our investments are going. Same thing as as consumers, right? Uh, so we need to be a little bit more aware of what it means when, you know, a company is promoting uh, their B certified corporation or that they are adopting ESG metrics um, and have a little bit more focus on what is the value that I'm getting from this uh, transaction versus the um, espoused virtue from it. This is one of the points that the professor makes. He said, you know, you can sound good or you can do good. 
but he said, they're out there selling ESG. Like you can be good and earn higher returns. He said, this is all cake and no calories. There's no trade-offs in this ESG world. None. What it, just like in stakeholder theory, there's, well, you don't have to worry about trade-offs. We can pay the Indian people more that work on our boat. We can charge lower prices to our, I mean, this is just, this is kindergarten economics. Right, right. Well, and the certification systems, it's its a really, once again, for organizations that think, hey, I'm going to look good because I'm going to get the stamp of a tr- approval. It also really exposes you once again to an external party who is going to kind of give you your lot in life in terms of where you rank in relation to your competitors and um, and might really come back to, to harm your business quite a bit. Um, it calls more attention to what you're doing um, and yeah. So I, yeah, I'm not a fan of it at all, <laughs> but I see uh, we're getting maybe close to the break. So I'm holding I back. <laughs> I, I got one quick exit question for you. You know, markets are supposed to be smart. Um, the, the actors in them are supposed to be rational and you're supposed to look for the best returns and all of that, uh, which baffles me why this is, is prolonged as long as it has. Do you think we'll overcome this? Are you optimistic that we're going to push back? Because I'm not. I think we're going to get a bevy of regulations on this. And I think it's just going to be a wet blanket on the economy. Yeah, I, I got to be honest, too. I'm I'm not thinking we're going to pull back. I kind of equate it to some other certification systems that we've seen over time. Um, but I also think kind of like we dug our own grave. Um, a great example is how like organic farming came about. Uh, it was first initiated by the farmers themselves. And then as it grew and got attraction, uh, was attractive and got a lot of traction, fragmentation occurred. Well, this is an organic and this is an organic and right. And so then these different stamps had to be certified and then you had to make that official. And then that became legislated and now you have policies in place. So I kind of see it going the same way and that we have this fragmentation but massive adoption in regards to the ESG frameworks. And so it's gonna become institutionalized. And and once you have that standardized system, um, it's gonna be easy to put a policy in place for it. Yeah, yeah, the problem with capitalism is capitalists. Well, Kimberly, thank you so much for reappearing on the Soul of Enterprise. This has been a great discussion. Sorry, we went a little long there, Ed. I know I bumped into your time. Folks, I'd like to remind you, if you wanna contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we wanna hear from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. 
by now you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with Dr. Kimberly Josephson. We are talking ESG and all things. I want to pivot a little bit here and go specifically about the employer-employee relationship. You wrote an article back in September of 2022, uh, Why Work Shouldn't Love You Back, and That's How It's Supposed to Be. (laughs) So I want to open with the story that you did. You were listening to Ezra Klein's podcast, and and Mm -hmm. he had on Sarah Jaffe, who basically said that the devotion to our jobs keeps exploiting us. We are exhausted and alone. Are we, are, we be, are we all being exploited? I didn't realize this, that I was being exploited. Yeah, you know, and it just, it, oh, it, it broke my heart listening to that episode too, because it just, you know, it makes it just sound so dismal. And, and granted, I know, you know, there are hard jobs out there, right? You have the 3Ds, uh, that dirty, dangerous, I can't remember what the other one is, but I mean, that you take these opportunities, anyone who's ever um, applied for a job and really wanted it and been so happy to get it. And then some time after you kind of go through that honeymoon period and then you, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. But just the opportunity to just have that job is such a good thing. When I was younger, I did housekeeping. I was a waitress. I worked at a snack shop. Like I did everything under the, the sun. I actually stuffed envelopes during tax season too. So um, I did whatever I could. And I didn't feel that as exploitation. I was seizing those opportunities, right? And the more I accumulated um, wealth, essentially, through those small salaries and small uh, little paychecks and tips and things like that, but also um, accumulated my networks and my experience and my skill sets. Um, it's all now growing pains can hurt, but also you're growing. Um, so it's not, we don't live in really an, an exploitative market when you do have a voluntary system. Now, once again, there are going to be times where you might feel like you have no other option and you have to take this crappy job. But also at the end of the day, thank goodness there is that crappy job to take. Otherwise you'd have nothing, right? Um, So I just, I feel like a lot of times we create this inflated view of work is going to be, you know, you know, just beautiful and wonderful and we're going to be appreciated and empowered. And it's not, most of the time it's not, it is really kind of what you make of it. Um, And so I just, I, yeah, it inspired me to write this article because I just want to kind of bring it back to reality that, you know, employment is, is an opportunity uh, that we shouldn't take take for granted. What drives me crazy is when people use the term slave wages. And I'm like, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> like... Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, once again, you know, if, if you're feeling like you have no other option and you, that's unfortunate, right? But once again, at least you have that option for the crappy job at the crappy wages type of thing. And you work at it and work at it until you can pursue something better. Um, you know, I think that any sort of uh, business relationship should be between and contractually based between the employer and the employee, right? Uh, and you're both trying to maximize, uh, you know, the 
the relationship, what you're getting out of it. Um, and once you find that, you keep on right. And once you prove you're an asset, and once again, you keep on working at it, um, you know, you can you can go about like so for example uh most people will hire if they think it's to their benefit right um to have that additional help or to outsource something so um i would love to actually have someone clean my house right um I, but there are other things that kind of take priority that i put my money towards and i figure well you know what? i can do it myself but if someone were to come to my house and say you know what? i'll clean it for x amount and it's just the right amount for me and for them it's just the right amount for it to be worthwhile oh my goodness yes no one should tell me that we shouldn't do that if they want to be in that arrangement and i want to be in that arrangement you know that's a good thing that's a good thing for both of us um so so yeah whenever you hear about people aren't getting paid enough or stuff like that you know just get the government out let it be between the business owner and the employee and and let them sort it out yeah, I, I love how the, the you know these these Congress people who who have uh, pages that are voluntary in a lot of a lot of ways is re lecture us on the minimum wage. <laughs> right. Do you know for uh, and they have unpaid interns? I mean, right. it, just, it makes no sense. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. They've gotten called out quite a few times, and so I don't know if it's still true, but. It, fairly recently, yeah. uh, interns are not getting paid on the Hill. So it's yeah, kind of yeah. like, yeah, what? Yeah, calling the kettle black. <laughs> and, uh, Ron has a new book out on subscription pricing. And one of the things that I've, in, in reading it and working with him and talking about subscription over the, the last four years or so, it realizes effectively your job is, your, your employer is subscribing to you. That's that's what they're doing. They're, every two weeks you get a paycheck and they subscribe to you because they want access to you. And right. Guess what? They should make more money than they pay you. That's how it's supposed to work. Like, and I, I think people, well, they're making so much more on me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they wouldn't have you there if they weren't. It's the same thing as with any sort of market-based transaction. So just like, you know, as a customer and a producer, um, I'm not going to buy those Taylor Swift tickets unless they are of value to me, right? And they're mm -hmm. not going to sell them at that price unless that they know they can make the sale. So same thing with organizations and hiring employees. Um What's interesting, too, is we see a lot like in terms of compensation packages and different benefits and things like that. They've just proliferated over time, um, uh, basically to cater to employees and what they need. Uh, one of the newest ones, which I think is really funny, uh, is because you always hear about and I've written a few articles on this, but the student debt debate. Right. Well, now that employers have heard about this in the news a lot and realize that this is a hot topic and of interest of Gen Z. Um, some employers are now including in their compensation packages, um, you know, paying back degree programs uh, as part of their sign-on bo bonuses that they'll put a percentage towards paying off your degree, um, which actually is probably to benefit to the um, to the employer because they have low interest rates, right, <laughs> for that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a win-win. Yeah, and but of course, you know, that's always taken into a factor is what's the total compensation package anyway? I mean, you know, right. most people think, oh, you know, my employer is paying half my social security. No, no, no. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, you're that 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 was one of the best marketing ever when the government said, "Oh, we're going to split this into two parts." Uh-huh. Right. Right. <laughs> and right. Like, oh, isn't it great with my employer? Well, Kimberly, this is great. We have to have you back. There's so much more to talk about and we want to always stay abreast of 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 your thinking on on ESG and all of these other things, but we have to we have to move on. So, thanks for thanks okay. for uh, for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? 
Next week, Ed, we're going to have kind of a complimentary show to Dr. Jay Baruch. This is Dr. David Alfrey, and he wrote a great book called Saving Grace. He's an anesthesiologist, and I think folks are going to find this completely profound. All right. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours then, Ron. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage building experiences that connect, remove friction and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 PM Eastern. That's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.